Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and for worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. Uh, if you brought your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you have, would you please take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. We are going to continue our study through this Gospel that we've been on now for quite some time. And uh, today we come to what I would think would be a very familiar passage of Scripture to most all of us in the room. I would imagine that at some point all of us have heard of the story of the encounter of Jesus and this man who we come to know as being the rich young ruler. And we are going to read that encounter this morning from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Uh, it's interesting, Mark, doesn't, Mark just tells us that the man was rich. If we look back and, and look at Matthew's account of this, we find that he was young. And if we go over and read Luke's account of it, we will find that he's a ruler. And it's an amalgamation of that. It's where we come to, to define from those three different accounts. That's why we call him the rich young ruler. Luke doesn't exactly tell us what he was the ruler of. We don't know if he was a governmental ruler or if he was just a ruler in the synagogue. It could have been either way. But what we do know is that in all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler comes on the heels of the story that we looked at last week, the account of where Jesus has to rebuke his disciples because his disciples are preventing parents from bringing their children to Jesus in order for him to bless them. Now, we looked at that passage this past Sunday, and if you'll recall, what we learned from that uh, that, that involved Jesus' rebuke of, those, of his own disciples was that by Jesus' welcoming and blessing little children, he actually demonstrates that the kingdom of God belongs to the weak. It belongs to the helpless and to the dependent, to those who, who cannot earn their salvation, but rather those who come helplessly and who by faith receive it as an undeserved gift. Now, what we learned last week was just simply that every person, every Every man, woman, boy, and girl must come to Jesus in the same way that a little child does. Empty-handed. No boasting or in one's stature or in one's standing. Recognizing their absolute need and their dependence upon God for His grace and His mercy. And what Jesus makes plain is that weak, helpless dependence is absolutely necessary for entering the kingdom. It's absolutely necessary for being saved. Now, that's what we learned last week. And it is in contrast to that absolutely critical lesson that we learned that this rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And in his encounter with Jesus, it is no mistake that we realize that his affluence, his, his power, his 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 place in society actually caused his approach to Jesus to be very opposite of that of a helpless, dependent baby. So as we understand that, then let's go to the Word and let's read that this morning as, as we've set it up. And I, here's my prayer today. My prayer is that our familiarity with this text will not actually be a hindrance to us being able to truly understand how this text applies to our life. So I pray that our familiarity will actually open us up to the truth of the lesson that we might receive it from God's holy word this morning. And so let's hear the word of God beginning in Matthew 10, verse 17. The Bible says this, Now, as he was going out on the road, that is Jesus, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, 
What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. He was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be here this day, uh, at this time, in this place, with our Bibles open before you. Pray that you would give to us that which we lack, understanding, wisdom, discernment. Give it to us through your word that you have promised us is sufficient for everything that we need to lead us into salvation and into a life of, of complete dependence and discipleship. So I pray that with our Bibles open and our minds open that you would fill our hearts by your Holy Spirit and lead us into all truth because your word is truth. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I kind of chewed on this text and contemplated it and tried to approach it with a fresh set of eyes because, you know, I, like many of you, have, have heard this sermon preached and this text preached upon uh, from, for many, many years. And so as I attempted to approach it with a fresh set of eyes, the more that I thought about this man, the more that I thought about this rich young ruler, the more I thought about this was exactly the kind of man that I hope will one day pursue the hearts of my daughters. But not anytime soon. As the, as the father of three girls, I, I was thinking, this guy, this is, this is the guy. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the text describes him as a rich young ruler. Let's, let's just assume those things. But there's a lot of other characteristics about this guy that, that would attract us to him. Let me point some of those out to you. He was an achiever. The fact that he was young and then as Luke says he was a ruler means that, that he was one who was, who was a fast climber up the ladders of, of society. He, he, was, he was one who had already achieved success at a young, young age. He was, he was one whose star was on the rise that you kind of want to get your lasso around and, and let him bring you with him. But not only that, he was a devout man. He was... He was a respectful man. He was a, he was a good man who lived a disciplined and, and exemplary life. From what we learn of him, he would have been the type of man who you would have had no worries about. Again, looking at it from my perspective as a potential father-in-law, I, I would not have any worries about this man ever mistreating my daughter, and I would think that he would be a wonderful father to my grandchildren. He would be the kind of man that if you had a business that you would be looking to turn it over to him at some point. This is the kind of guy that he was. From the way that the gospel writers describe this man, he was the kind of guy that when he walked into a room, everyone would have been instantly attracted to him. He was probably tall, dark, and handsome. Doors just would have seemed open for him. We might even put it in our modern vernacular this way. He could have probably gone to any of the top restaurants in town where they require reservations, and he didn't even need one. They would have just found him a place and ushered him in. 
as I contemplated this man more and more and more, the more I liked him. Then I realized, wait a minute. This passage isn't about the rich young ruler. This passage is about Jesus. In fact, the action that occurs in these verses, as well as the emotions that are expressed, show us that rather than concentrating our attention on this man, actually the arrows of this text point to Jesus throughout it. Let me show you what I mean. You see, it's the rich young ruler who approaches Jesus. He's the one who's wanting to gain knowledge and information from Jesus. And it's also the rich young ruler who eventually walks away from Jesus in sorrow. In other words, Jesus is the central figure toward whom, to whom, and from whom all the action and the dialogue in this text centers. But with that being said, this passage is intended to confront us and it's intended to challenge us just as it we see Jesus confronted and challenged the rich young ruler. And therefore, we've got to identify with him. We've got to understand, seek to understand how our lives parallel his life. Now, for some of you, you're probably wanting to check out right now because you're thinking to yourself, well, I, it's not going to apply to me because I'm not rich. Or, or, or maybe you might think, well, then I'm, not, I'm not young. Or, or maybe you're thinking, I'm certainly not a ruler of any kind. But if you approach the text that way, I think you are making a grave mistake. And the reason that I would say that is because I believe that all of us in this room have much, much more in common with this rich young ruler than we would care to admit. And that's why I put this outline together for you in your bulletin the way that I have today. I've, I've, I've made some simple statements that I hope, will, I hope will, 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 will generate some thought. I hope they'll generate some, some, some thoughts for us to hang our, our thoughts on, some hooks that maybe we can hang our thoughts on today. And, and the way that I organize them, I hope, helps us focus on the thought processes and the actions that we find of this rich young ruler. And so I want you to note the first one that I put there. The first little hook that I want us to consider this morning is this. The rich young ruler misunderstood and he was right. He misunderstood and he was right. Let me show you what I mean. You see, in many ways, the rich young ruler did exactly the right things. He went to the right source. He went to Jesus. And when he went to Jesus, he went in the proper way. He, he came eagerly. He came willingly. Mark tells us that he went running to Jesus. Not only that, but, but he also came respectfully. Mark tells us that when he ran to Jesus, he knelt before him, showing, showing honor and, and, and humility. Furthermore, he spoke to Jesus displaying his intent to honor him. He addressed Jesus as good teacher or good rabbi. So, so what we can say is that this man came to the right source and he came in the right way and he displayed the right attitude. And he also had the right subject on his mind. And by right, what I mean is that he had the weightiest and the most important subject that anyone could ever have on their mind. He wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life. Friend, I want you to know there is no greater question than that. The answer to that question is of the most significant importance. Jesus tells us that he came to bring us life and that he came to bring us abundant life. 
And that kind of life is a life that is full of joy and it is full of peace and it is full of fulfillment. And Jesus says that he came to bring us that life not only temporarily, but he came to bring us eternal life. Life that will be spent in heaven before the Father, living with him, glorifying him, enjoying him forever. That's the kind of life that Jesus came to offer. And what I want you to know is the opposite of that life is death. The opposite of eternal life is eternal death. And by that very definition, what we understand is that eternal death does not mean, cannot mean, non-existence. Rather, what it means is that it is an eternal existence spent in agony, in untold misery. It is an, it is an eternity spent experiencing the pain and the, the horrible results of being separated from the one and only true source of life. The opposite of eternal life is to spend an eternity apart from God's grace and mercy, bearing the full weight of your sins upon yourself without the possibility of parole in a place called hell, in a place that God has prepared for Satan and his demons, in a place that, as we read just a couple of weeks back, is a place where the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. Now it is that question, how can I avoid eternal death? That question of what do I need to be able to, to gain eternal life, to inherit it, that was on this rich young ruler's mind as he came to Jesus. And obviously that question was bothering him. He was anxious about it. So anxious that he came and he threw himself down before Jesus. He ran to him first. John MacArthur says that the running, the act of running toward Jesus was considered beneath a Jewish man's dignity. To run was just something that a Jewish man would never have done under normal circumstances. So obviously then, this question that was bothering him was so important that it drove him to humility and drove him to Jesus. It drove him to the person that he believed could provide him with the answer that he longed for. But it's also obvious that the rich young ruler misunderstood exactly who it was that he threw himself down in front of. And we learn that by the fact that Jesus corrects him before he ever leads the man to the answer that he seeks. Notice that Jesus, how he responds to the young man. He looks at him, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You see, Jesus takes this opportunity to remind this man that God alone is the source and the essence of essential goodness. Now, let me hasten to say, Jesus, by his question and by his statement, he was not denying or disavowing his own divinity, nor was he saying that he was not good. Rather, what Jesus is doing is pointing out to the rich young ruler that though he did come to the right source to find the answer to the question that burned within him, he did not truly know whom it was that he was asking the question. The rich young ruler did not recognize that he was talking to God incarnate. He did not fully understand that the one whom he bowed before was the second person of the Trinity. How do we know that? Well, we learn that by the fact that the rich young, how the, the rich young ruler used that term good. He used it differently from the way that it was used to refer to God, particularly in the Old Testament. As R.C. Sproul points out, 
the term good is often used in a comparative way. In other words, we often refer to a good person as, as someone who, who's conscientious, someone who's kind, someone who, who you know, helps little children across the street when they need to be helped and, and does good things like that, someone who pays their debt, someone who is a hard worker. That's generally how we define a good person. And we do so in comparison to the people that we define as bad. Bad people are the people who, who are not so kind. They're the people who are, who are mean-spirited. They're hateful. They're prideful. They, they, they cheat people. They refuse to help folks who are in need. And so what, normally when we look at that, we look as a good person as somebody that sort of fits under this umbrella and bad as somebody who fits under this umbrella. And the way that we can determine it is based upon their actions and upon their, their human achievements. What I want you to know is that that's exactly how this rich young ruler was defining the term good when he came to Jesus. When he says good teacher, he doesn't have the essential goodness of God in his mind. He has the, essential, he has the goodness that's defined by human achievement. He has the, a comparative goodness in mind, a goodness that is a far cry from the genuine goodness that is defined by the character and the essence of God. And what becomes obvious then is that when one understands good according to God's standards of goodness, then none of us, none of us can be described with that term. In fact, as both the psalmist and the apostle Paul write, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside they have come together, they have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, friends, I don't know exactly how you want to dissect that verse, but let me get to the essence of it. No one means all of us. There is not a one of us, according to the scriptures, who does good. Not by the definition that we understand that God is good. We may say we can be good in comparison to somebody else horizontally who is worse than we are, but we can never say we are good when we compare ourselves to a holy, righteous God. So the rich young ruler, he was right to come to Jesus. He was, he was right to come reverently and respectfully. He was right in pondering and grappling with the most significant question. Yet it is obvious by the way that Jesus poked him here with regard to the way he used the word good that the rich young ruler misunderstood. That is, he failed to recognize who it was that he was speaking to. But it's also obvious that he misunderstood his own goodness. In fact, that leads me to the next point on your outline. You see, he misunderstood and he was right, but he, he misunderstood and he was wrong. He misunderstood and he was wrong. I like what William Lane has, has written. He says that because the rich young ruler's idea of goodness was defined by human achievement, then he undoubtedly regarded himself as good in the sense that he was confident that, that he had fulfilled the commandments. In fact, that is the second place that Jesus pokes this man. He pokes him to begin with, with his definition of what good was and then he pokes him with regard to his keeping of the law verse 19 he says you know the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness do not defraud honor your father and your mother now all of you all of you diligent bible students out there will immediately know that those are the final six commandments of the ten commandments 
And you will also know that those are the ones that form the second table of the law. And those are the ones that, that, that really seem to define our relationships one with the other. I like to call them, those are the horizontal commandments. They're the ones that determine how we are to act amongst each other, how we are to treat one another, how we're not supposed to treat one another, how we're to act horizontally. And notice what the rich young ruler responds, how he responds to Jesus. He says, teacher. And you notice that here's another characteristic of, 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 of the rich young ruler. He was also a quick learner. You notice he didn't start by calling him good teacher again. He's like, I, I've already gotten smacked down for that one time. I'm not going to do it a second time. So he just starts with teacher this time. And he says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now listen, I, I don't believe for one second that this man was fudging on the truth as he understood it. I believe that he believed with all of his heart that he had kept these commandments just as he said to the Lord. In his mind, he was not a lawbreaker. He was, he, was dil, he was diligent to do everything that the law commanded him to do, and he was diligent not to do everything that the law forbade him to do. And that's how he lived his life. And how he lived his life and the way that he understood the law as it applied to him, I believe is indicative of very many today, both those outside the walls of the church and those inside the walls of the church. You see, for many, they understand religion. They understand the law to be an external set of rules that must be kept. And so to many, the, the ability to, to keep those rules is what determines their value. That's what determines their worth before God. They look at it this way. God's got all this list of things that we are to do. And, and my goal through life, my job through life is to, is to tick off as many of those things as I can to say that I've done them. All the things that I should do, I need to put a check by that box. And as many checks as I can, that's what I need to do over here. And then there's this list of things that I'm not supposed to do over here, the bad stuff in my life. And I need to keep myself away from this and not check as many of those things off as I can. And at the end of my life, because I am going to mess up some, so I know I've got to get at least a few checks over here. There's a few things that I'm going to do wrong. I realize that. But my goal is to get more checks on this side of the ledger than there are on this side of the ledger because at the end of my life, God is going to look at those things and he's going to weigh them out. And at the end of my life, this is what I believe. God is going to reward me if my good checks outweigh my bad checks. And the unfortunate thing about that is, the tragic thing about that is, is that there are many outside and inside the walls of the church who have deceived, been deceived, and are deceiving themselves into believing that that is really how this whole eternal life thing works. In many ways, that is why I believe that the rich young ruler actually addressed his question to Jesus the way that he did. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His whole framework of eternal life was built upon what achievements he could accomplish. He, like so many today, completely misunderstood the gospel of grace. You see, the Apostle Paul writes to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that we are saved by grace through faith. And then he says, that faith that you get is not even of yourselves. It is a gift of God in itself. So therefore, 
It's a gift of God, not of works, so that none of us have any room to stand before God or in front of our other brothers and sisters and boast about anything. So, so what becomes obvious is that the rich young ruler misunderstood the gospel. But he also, he also misunderstood the purpose of the law. You see, this man had obviously not been in the crowd when Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount. In that greatest sermon that has ever been preached, Jesus taught that it was not just the externals that matter. In fact, Jesus takes great pains to point out that the full reach of the commandments penetrate down past the observable, down past the things that are on the surface, down to the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts, down to the things that, quite frankly, nobody else can see and no one else can know except for you and the Lord. For example, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that an adulterer is not only someone who commits the physical act of adultery, but is anyone who even looks upon a member of the opposite sex and lusts after him. Jesus also says that a murderer is not someone who has physically just taken the life of another human being, but rather is anyone who has become angry with his brother without a cause. You see, according to Jesus' words, while the interpretation of the law had devolved into this list of rules that only required external and formal obedience, just a bunch of things that we needed to put tick marks after to say we had done, Jesus says that the intent of the law was actually to show us God's demands were far greater and far more radical than that. In fact, while many could say that they'd never done this or while they'd always done this other thing in an external way, what we found out is that none of our hearts will remain pure before God, the gaze of Almighty God. In fact, as one has put it this way, our hands may be clean while our hearts at the same time are black. And that's the point that the rich young ruler missed. He saw the list as a list of rules to keep. God gave the law in order to point His people rather to His standard, which was perfection. The law was given to expose our secret sins and to condemn us when we don't meet its standards so that we might recognize that none of those things will ever be able to be what saves us and to drive us to our real source of salvation, which is in Jesus. So thus far, what we can really say about the rich young ruler is that he's misunderstood just about everything. Even though his approach... His interest, his humility, his address to Christ were all technically right. He nevertheless misunderstood to whom he addressed his question. And furthermore, it's obvious from the way that he answered Jesus' question and from the comments that he makes that he misunderstood the gospel of grace and he misunderstood the purpose of the law. And he understood the depths of his own sinfulness. But thankfully, Jesus is about to correct all of that. Jesus is about to answer this man's question. And in doing so, he's going to point him to the only hope for attaining that which he desperately sought, eternal life. Notice verse 21, verse, verse 21 once more. He says, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up your cross, and follow me. Let me point you to the commands one more time, the imperatives in that verse. 
are simply this. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Go, sell, give, come, follow. Now, if you're reading that, you may be saying, wait a minute, preacher, time out. Didn't you just say, not just a few minutes ago, that we are not saved by our works, but by faith? And yet, Jesus here gives the man five commands to follow. Which one is it? Are we saved by grace through faith or are we saved by our works? I want you to know that is an excellent question. Absolutely excellent question. And in order to answer it, I want to point you to the fact that before Jesus gives the man the five commands to go, sell, give, come and follow, he says this, there is one thing that you lack. You see, exposing that the man lacked one thing is really what Jesus is driving him to. And so what that tells us is that the only way that the man could obey the five commands that Jesus gave him was if his heart had been radically transformed by the one thing that he lacked. Let me, let me state that a little differently and expand upon it. You see, Jesus has been poking this man ever since he came to him. He poked him with regard to his use of the word good. He poked him with regard to the fact that... that he was going to have to understand what it meant to, that, that the law was not a list of commands to do. But here, he, gives the, he pokes him in the most sensitive spot that the man had. He gives the man five things to do, all of which will require him to relinquish his hold on the very things that mattered most to him. All of his possessions, which Mark says were great, Jesus says you've got to get rid of them. You've got to sell them. Take the proceeds. Give them to the poor. Now, I want you to think about that for just a minute. If this man did exactly what Jesus told him to do, if he sold everything that he had, took the money, give, gave that to the poor, he would ultimately become just like the ones that he just gave all of the money to. He himself would become poor and needy. But there's more. He not only had to divest himself of all of his wealth and possessions, but he had to walk away from his position of power and prestige. He was a ruler, as we mentioned. Luke tells us that. But he was not only wealthy, he was powerful. And Jesus says, you've got to walk away from all of that. You've got to come and be my disciple. Follow me. Leave every bit of that behind and come and follow me. And some might hear these words and think to themselves, how cruel of Jesus. How, uh, how terrible to tell a man to give up everything, to walk away from everything he'd ever amassed in his life, all of his fortune, all of his security. Yet, friend, I want you to know that's not the first time Jesus has done this. Right at the beginning of Mark, he goes to Andrew, Peter, James, John, says, guys, lay down your fishing nets, hook up your boats to the, the shore here and come and be my disciples and follow me. He did the same thing when he approached Levi, who was a tax collector. And he said, Levi, who eventually we know became named Matthew, he says, leave your tax collecting table behind, leave your job behind, and come be my disciple and follow me. Friend, this is exactly what Jesus calls to all of his disciples to do. He tells us that we have to lay down our lives, that we have to lay down everything that we value. We have to lay down everything that defines who we are. We have to lay down everything that gives us our identity and to lay all of that down in order that we can turn loose of it and grab onto Him. So is that cruel? Is that mean? Is that unloving? No, in fact. Mark tells us very clearly that 
Jesus looked at the man and loved him. See, these five commands that Jesus gave, this man, gave to this rich young ruler was actually his expression of love to him. Because he was telling him, listen, if you'll turn loose of the things that you are clutching so tightly, the things of which your security is defined by, the things that you value most in your life, if you will turn loose of that, there's an even greater reward in store for you. Which is exactly what the man had come to him looking for to begin with. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Turn loose of everything else in your life and turn only to me. Such love is not cruel. To say something like that to someone is not uncaring. Rather, such love will tell us the things that we not just want to hear, the things that we need to hear. You see, the love that Christ gives to us tells us it confronts us. Christ's love exposes the weak and the frail parts of our lives. Christ's love for us brings out into the open the things that, quite frankly, we would prefer to remain hidden. But his love for this man, Christ pokes him in this most tender spot in these five commands that Jesus gives him, five commands that necessitated that he walk away from everything that he valued in his life. Well, those five commands revealed the man's idolatry. And it revealed the one thing that the rich young ruler lacked. He lacked obedience to that very first commandment. The first of the Ten Commandments was this, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, the Lord Jesus in his love for this man exposed to him that his first love was not the Lord God. One point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Well, Jesus exposes to this man the fact that he did not love the Lord God that way. He revealed that the compass needle of a person's heart will always point in the direction in which his treasure dwells. And for this man, his treasure was in his possessions and in his position. And so Jesus says, turn it loose, let it go, walk away from all of it, come and follow me. What you lack is single-eyed, totally devoted heart that has placed God above everything else in your life. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus poked just the right spot because suddenly, and for the very first time in this text, the man's misunderstanding went away, and for the very first time, he actually understands. In fact, that's the third point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. He understands, and he walked away. Mark said that the man went away sorrowful. He was crestfallen. He was, he was completely unhinged by what Jesus said to him and commanded for him to do. In his love for this man, Jesus had effectively told him, I will be Lord of everything in your life or I will not be Lord at all in your life. This man came seeking what he must do to gain eternal life and Jesus told him and the man sorrowfully walked away because for him that was too high of a price. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are the rich young ruler. Imagine that it is you 
that Jesus has cast his penetrating glare upon. And he's looking deep within you into the very depths of your soul. And in his love for you, he pokes you right in the area that hurts the worst. What would that be? You see, for some, it might be just like him. It might be possessions. It might be wealth. For others, it might be status or position in life. For some, it just might be a person or a relationship. It could be, it could be some secret sin that you are unwilling to repent of and to turn away from. Understand this. Jesus in His infinite and matchless love speaks to you just as He did to this rich young ruler. He speaks to you just as He did to His other disciples. You see, back a couple of chapters in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and following, He says, Whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Brothers and sisters, I do not know if this rich young ruler ever came back to Christ later in his life. The Bible does not give us any account of it if he did. And if he did not, then he met eternity completely unprepared. And rather than inheriting eternal life, he inherited eternal death that we described earlier. And because that would be the case, then I would believe that that question must still be burning in his mind even today. What does it profit a man if he gains the entire world and yet loses his own soul? Friend, the price for your eternal life was so high that it demanded that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, go to Calvary's cross and die in your place so that you might inherit eternal life, a life of abundant joy and abundant peace and fulfillment. And in His love for you, He died for you. But in His love for you, He also pokes you and tells you that you must forsake all other idols. You must turn loose of whatever you value more than Him. And as one has put it, according to God's Word, if you want God to be your Savior, you will have to replace what you are already looking to as Savior. Therefore, brothers and sisters, that leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Eternal life is a treasure of infinite and all-surpassing worth, a gift from God that cannot be earned. And as such, it demands that those who receive it let go of anything that would dethrone Christ from His rightful position as Savior and Lord. Based upon what this passage teaches us, then let me say this to you. Eternal life is offered to you today. But it comes only by grace. It cannot be earned. cannot be bought. It is a gift to folks who are undeserving of it. Folks just like you and me. But make no mistake. It is a gift that will cost you everything. Jesus demands that we turn loose of everything that we value more than him. I was reading a book by Tim Keller this week. He, he said something very interesting. He had an interesting take on this passage, something that I had never considered before. He notes that in this passage, Jesus too 
is a rich young ruler. In fact, he was richer and a greater ruler than this man could have ever imagined. He, he, he had all of the wealth of heaven at his disposal. He had ruled there over all of creation from all eternity past. And yet, as Philippians 2 tells us, he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming to earth veiled in flesh so that he might provide for our salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that Jesus Christ was rich, but for our sakes he became poor. And as Keller writes this, the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything, gave it away in order to come and to rescue you because he loves you. And listen, his message for you is the same as it was for this rich young ruler. If you desire eternal life, then you will have to stop trusting in your own goodness and turn loose of what you've been looking to as a Savior and trust in Him and in Him alone because, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.